The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I can't imagine the jury not being aware that not just Trump is absent, but that Trump is out there sort of celebrating his absence as his communication of the trial's deep unseriousness. We can imagine jurors who do take their obligation really seriously are incredibly moved intellectually by the evidence of Trump's guilt and thinking, gosh, against this evidence, his failure to appear is just another indication of the contempt with which he holds all appropriate government activity. And we should hold him accountable for what he has charged and in a way take his absence as consciousness of guilt proof. I'm Natalie Orpet, Executive Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 11th, 2023. Former President Trump has been arguing for some time now that the criminal charges he's facing in New York, Florida, and D.C. are politically motivated. At a campaign event in New Hampshire a few days ago, he also complained that the cases are forcing him to spend time and money away from the campaign trail. The cases haven't even gotten to trial yet, but two of them are scheduled to take place during campaign season. Which raises the question, does Trump have to actually attend all of these trials while he's also running for president? I sat down with Dan Richman, the Paul J. Kellner Professor of Law at Columbia Law School, to discuss. As it turns out, it's a complicated question. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 11th, 2023. Does Trump have to attend his own trials? So, Dan, as we know, former President Trump is facing, let us say, a lot of different legal proceedings. Um, So right now, it seems like everyone's really focused on the recent indictment in D.C. brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith. But there are four other proceedings going on. So we have the Special Counsel prosecution in Florida over classified documents, criminal prosecution in New York brought by Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg. And then three separate civil cases and reporting suggests there actually may also be a fifth proceeding soon in um, coming out of Fulton County, Georgia. So let's just start with the basics for the non-lawyers and and maybe also for the lawyers who haven't been in court recently. Does Trump have to attend all of these trials? I wish I could give a clear, definitive answer, 
But but sad to say, my response is probably yes, but it's going to take a decision by courts on novel facts without very much guidance from the operative legal framework. Okay. But so just to be clear, though, he does not need to attend the civil trials. Is that right? That's correct. Criminal trials are fundamentally about a defendant and the defendant's appearance is generally thought to be a foundational part of a trial. Okay. So we know that in the criminal trials, so that's the two federal trials in Florida and D.C., and then in the criminal trial in New York State, um, that there is a presence requirement. We're going to skip over New York because that's under state law. Um, They do have a procedural rule that Trump has to be present at trial unless he moves to waive his presence. The government doesn't object and the judge approves. That's the rule. Um, But we, for these purposes, are going to focus on the federal system. So, Dan, can you just talk us through the legal framework that speaks to the question of a defendant's presence in federal court? Sure. For most people, including me, the first thing you think about when you think about a defendant's presence is the Confrontation Clause, the Sixth Amendment provision that ensures that a defendant will be present and can confront the witnesses against them and can and must have a right to appear at trial. When we're talking about a situation where a defendant, as in this case, may not want at all to be present, the operative law comes not from the Sixth Amendment, but from a federal rule, Rule 43, essentially a statute, that requires his presence. And Rule 43, when you read just the rule, seems to set up not just a preference for a defendant being present, but an absolute demand um, with some exceptions that aren't really relevant here. Okay. And so what do you make of that difference? As you said, the the sort of does this right belong to the defendant, as it would seem from the Sixth Amendment, versus the existence of this rule that seems to mandate presence? Essentially, a jurisdiction could choose, I suppose, if it wanted to, to give a defendant license to come and go as he wished. He would have a Sixth Amendment right to attend but he wouldn't have any obligation to attend if he chose not to. What this rule, essentially statute, says is he needs to be present full stop. And there are a couple exceptions that I'm going to not refer to just because, as I said, they're not relevant here. But if you just read the text of this rule, it seems to be the start and end of an analysis that says, You need to be there full stop. Okay. And so I'm guessing, having studied the law before, that looking at this plain text is not the end of the question. So uh, you wrote a really, really useful piece for us recently on Lawfare that I recommend folks take a look at. Can you talk us through what you found when you started looking at what courts have said about Rule 43? Sure. 
And there is an irony here that we're, we're constantly told, particularly by the Supreme Court, that we live in a world of textualism, that we look at the text, the text sets up the operative framework, and the analysis is, for the most part, over. In this area, what we see is the, the rules setting up a framework that, by and large, is not exactly put to the side by lower courts, but has been regularly tempered by at least a number of them to the extent that, yes, no one, no court acts like the obligation of a defendant to be present should be taken lightly. But one sees in a number of cases, courts recognizing that there can and should be some daylight between the text of the rule and the way it plays out in actual trials. A defendant might get sick. A defendant might need some non-elective surgery in the middle of a trial. Obviously, if it's a very short trial, there might be measures one could take to accommodate that. Trials go on for many months. In, in previous, before we sort of lowered the boom on mega trials, they went for over a year. And you, you've seen in other cases, trial courts making allowances for the exigencies that come up and appellate courts either in many cases not having anything to say because the issue doesn't reach them or when it does reach them, essentially say in many circuits, yes, there is this strong obligation, but there's going to be a little wiggle room for for extreme circumstances. And generally, they're talking about health. But of course, generally, we haven't had cases where somebody wanted to run for president while a trial was going on. Right. So um, I actually wanted to pause for just a moment uh, before we delve into the law a little bit, because you mentioned in your piece that you've actually been involved personally in some very long cases where the question of the defendant's absence came up. Can you just tell us a little bit about those experiences? Sure. These were in the days before, at least in the Second Circuit, the circuit lowered the boom on mega trials. So in one case was um, the United States against Salerno. It was a very long organized crime case in which I was the very junior assistant. But a defendant took serious time off for health reasons. I I believe it was surgery. This was back in the late 80s. I forgot whether it was elective surgery or non-elective, but the court allowed it. And the only issue that came up on appeal, it came from his, his desire to have some sort of claim based on his an absence that he was responsible for. The other case, I didn't work on the trial, but I worked extensively on the appeal, was the The Pizza Connection case, Um, again, a very long, over a year, second um, case in the Southern District where, where again, a defendant really was absent for a considerable part of the case. And again, he was the one who raised some appellate issue, an, an issue that the Second Circuit resolved with heavy reference to his own choices. But what we generally don't see is, or 
I certainly haven't seen is where a court is very flexible in the attendance of a defendant and the government appropriately raises a challenge to that. Those are rare cases, but those are the cases that can produce interesting law. Right. So as you just said, it seems from the examples that a lot of the instances where this has come up, um, at least insofar as we can see from case law, relates to the defendant having been absent, typically for some sort of health reason. And you mentioned in your piece, and you just alluded to it now, that to really understand what the case law might say on this would be if there had been a situation where the defendant waived presence and the court allowed it, but the government had actually objected. And that seems like a plausible outcome in Trump's cases, where Trump would want to absent himself, presumably to work on his presidential campaign. And the government might, I don't know, but might object to his being gone. How do you think that would play out? There are two possibilities. One, were Trump to to seek license to, to come and go, and the government were to object and seriously push the trial judge to rule against them, the trial judge would have the obligation to think about what her ruling should be. And she'll consult the cases I did and get terribly little help from them in terms of precisely what she should be thinking about, particularly once we move away from health issues. The other way the legal issue would come up is if the trial judge were sympathetic and allowed Trump to take some time off and the government stuck to its guns and complained about the trial court's decision In that case, it might seek an extraordinary writ of mandamus. Now, particularly for listeners who are used to civil litigation, you might not realize that interlocutory appeals, the ability to get an appellate court to review a matter relating to a case, is very hard and rare, hard to get in the criminal context. But there is a possibility where a judge in the government's estimation, has really gone way beyond what her discretion could allow. And in that case, it would seek a writ of mandamus. And I certainly have seen a couple cases, and I alluded to them in my piece, in which writs of mandamus have been sought by the government in just those kinds of cases. Okay, so you mentioned that there's very little authority and you walk through it in your piece and and in fact that it is somewhat contradictory. So can we spend a little bit of time just talking about what is the case law? It looks like there's really only one Supreme Court case, but then a lot of weirdness at the lower levels. So can you talk us through that? Sure. Just to start, as I said, the rule creates a few exceptions um, that are not relevant here. But when you look at the rule in its full context, you realize that its reference to waiving presence isn't exactly how 
one might read it if one is looking for guidance on whether a defendant must be present. The reference to waiving continued presence that the rule has is really addressing a situation where a defendant chooses not to come to trial, not because he has a license not to come, but he just chooses not to. So bad things will happen to that defendant in the ordinary course, whether the judge will issue a bench warrant and he'll be brought in or he'll be found in contempt. But the the rule addresses the larger situation of, well, what's going on with the trial? Can the trial continue while the defendant's presence is being sought and obtained? And the answer the rule gives is if the defendant has made some voluntary decision not to, to come, even where he's been required to come, the trial can continue. He will be deemed to have waived his right to be present and will be unable or at least find it very hard to raise a claim on appeal. So the rule addresses mostly what happens where a defendant essentially acts contemptuously. But the rule sets up what appears to be a flat obligation of a defendant to appear at trial. Now, once you go to the cases, it gets a little messy. As you said, there is a Supreme Court case about Rule 43, but it's not precisely on point. That case, Crosby against the United States in in 1993, addressed a situation where a defendant did not appear, and the government was essentially arguing that, yes, there are these waiver provisions in Rule 43, but they're not exclusive. This is on the facts here. The defendant should also be deemed to waive. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, no, Rule 43 sets up some framework. We're going to stick with that framework full stop. So it's not exactly on point, but you get the general message from the Supreme Court that we're going to follow the rule and that's it. Once you move to the circuits, you see some real divergence. In a few courts, essentially look at the rule, say precisely what the rule seems to say, which is there are no exceptions where a defendant wants to waive his presence and would prefer not to attend, full stop. Other circuits where the issue has come up, which it does in dribs and drabs, have been more flexible and said, yes, there is this rule, but As the Second Circuit said, there's a sort of inherent authority of courts to to have some flexibility in the way Rule 43 is applied. And they don't give a lot of guidance as to what kind of flexibility, precisely what factors need to be considered, but they convey a general message that presence is really, really important, but For exceptionally good reasons, we can envision a lower court allowing a defendant to take some time off. And I keep on getting vague about some time off because the cases are. What's some? 10% of a trial? 20% of a trial? Do you have to be there for the opening and the closing? And that's about it. Certainly, I have views, but one can't get anything out of the cases about precisely how one draws the line if one is at all inclined to draw one at all. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, 
showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, so let's let's turn to Trump, sort of given all of that uncertainty. I'm curious for your thoughts based on what you've read and and just from your experience more generally. So say we're presented with a situation where Trump has requested to be absent, he's waived his presence, and either the government objects or the judge rules against him um, or it gets to a point where the judge is starting to um, deny requests to be absent. And as you just said, the courts don't give factors to consider. There isn't sort of a, a balancing test. But what do you think a judge would think about or how how would one of these judges in the Florida or D.C. cases consider that predicament? As you say, I am making this up as I go along, as the judges will have to. That's one of the really regrettable aspects of the state of the law. Where I would start, and I assume the judges would start, is a recognition that, yes, the cases that have allowed some wiggle room in Rule 43 and have allowed defendants in certain extreme dire circumstances not to attend, have, yes, focused on health concerns or really dire personal concerns of that sort. But I suspect that courts will not stop there. Here's where, as in so many aspects of the Trump prosecutions, we're going to have to lift our head from the narrow constraints of the cases and recognize that this case is sui generis, that when somebody, and I'm not even focusing on his being a former president, I'm focusing on his being a current candidate for a major party, at least we're we're told by the polling that there's a very good chance that he's going to be the Republican candidate in the general election. And I think there's a very good argument that Trump can be expected to make if he goes this route to the effect of, this isn't about health, this is about the country. And yes, it's a bit about me, but it's also about the country having access and voters having access to me and my views in the way that depriving me of the platform that only comes with presence would be a constitutionally significant injury. 
of the sort that can't be rectified on appeal. Um, This has nothing to do with overturning a conviction because it's not about prejudice to the defendant in the courtroom. It's about a public interest in having a candidate out there. And that's that's a significant kind of argument. I think they're really good and, to my mind, strong winning responses to it. But it's the kind of argument that I envision the district judges in this case taking seriously. And to the extent that they don't, or even if they do, a court of appeals might well, whether it's the D.C. Circuit in the D.C. case or the 11th Circuit in the Florida case, might weigh in to the extent that the judge was not sufficiently lenient to Trump's requests. So I'm curious, just to pause on this for a second, what do you think the Trump team's argument would be with respect to what is the constitutional injury to him or to the country if he is required to be present and can't run his political campaign effectively in his mind? It's always hard to to guess what the Trump camp will come up with in the way of legal arguments. They haven't always focused on the ones that seem most powerful, but I expect the most powerful argument would be not about Trump wanting to defend his own interest to be a candidate, but more about Trump articulating a strong First Amendment interest on the part of the citizens of the United States, potential voters, to hear his message, to encounter his message in a form that is most powerful, which, at least the argument goes, connects to physical presence. I say, as far as the argument goes, in the sense that maybe it's just my distance from Washington, but it always seems that Trump is is loudest in his in his what we used to call tweets and whatever he does these days on social media. But he does get more coverage on television when he makes personal appearances um, in a way that tweets or whatever won't get. So there really is an argument that the voters of the United States will be missing something they have a First Amendment interest in hearing were he they to be deprived of his presence. Okay. And another thing you referenced in your piece that I thought was really interesting is, say we end up with a situation where a judge is displeased with Trump not having followed her orders to appear and say that he's he's not appeared without the permission of court. And you had mentioned in, earlier that that could result in a bench warrant or a potential contempt charge. You had also mentioned in your piece the possibility of some sort of gag order if while Trump was not present, perhaps even with permission, I suppose, but was making public commentary that to the effect that would compromise the legitimacy or attempt to attack the legitimacy of the of the proceedings. How do you think that would work? Would Would a judge be able to issue some sort of restriction on his speech, and how might that affect the analysis with respect to presence? If this were a normal case, and the question was, what do we do about 
a defendant on trial who takes time out from the trial or even uses his spare time to go out, whether on the courthouse steps or more broadly in social media, and personally attack witnesses, argue that the trial is a put-up job, and perhaps go after the trial court herself. We'd say, well, there's an app for that. It's called a gag order, backed up by contempt citations, and also backed up if you violate, if you don't want to rest on the contempt citation, to revoke bail (laughs) and put the defendant in custody. None of those things work very well if one thinks about the likely prospect if a trial goes forward, whether or not he's allowed to take time off from the trial, of, of Trump being out there attacking witnesses, attacking the legitimacy of the proceedings. Certainly, the first move one can make is to seek a gag order. I expect the government would try to do that. But of course, there are two challenges were they to do that. The first is is straightforward, a legal challenge, which connects to what I was talking about in terms of the voters' interest in hearing from a candidate in perhaps the general election, which is, you know, the shutting down a defendant is normally deemed to be a perfectly appropriate move that doesn't violate the First Amendment, but where it's political speech at a critical time, perhaps good arguments could be made that there's a First Amendment interest in hearing from them, even if it undermines the trial. I'd like to think that a court would weigh the First Amendment concerns and reassert the importance of the legitimacy of the trial, but I cannot predict how that weighing would go. And over and above the hard legal question, is the the one of, well, this is not somebody whose compliance with court orders has been, shall we say, um, punctilious. Uh, you could order him, but if he violates now, the, uh, perhaps you could look toward the contempt proceedings, but he won't stop. Are you going to detain him? And the answer is, I can't imagine that happening. And once again, we're left in this really ugly place of somebody doing what in any other context would be contemptuous, obstructionary behavior, possibly getting away with it under the cover of some supposed national interest. Right. So it sounds like we're talking about just a standoff between the judge who would normally have a fair amount of authority in this situation and Trump on the other side with a lot of arguments that, you know, speaking of political speech are legitimately complicated and just the reality of how hard it would be for a judge to enforce with the tools available to her. This is a reminder of how how challenging it is to think in law terms about a defendant who is not thinking in law terms. The Legal arguments he and his camp raise are not necessarily calculated to get any traction in the court, therefore being picked up by his political allies. 
the orders that apply to him, he may comply with. If it suits him, he may choose not to. Knowing that, at least to hear him say it, that which is directed at him can make him stronger. So if you're trying to present the picture of the government hounding you and making a mortar out of you, the threat of contempt is one you would just walk right towards. Yeah. So we've spent a good amount of time sort of at, at this more outward looking piece of things. And that is to say how this role would intersect with the bigger picture as to the political campaign and the public interest and such. But I want to shift a little bit to the integrity of the proceedings themselves. So we know that Trump has appeared for his initial appearance and arraignment in both cases. And he, you know, maybe maybe we're wrong and he will, in fact, appear and be present at the trial, at least for some period of time. You had written in your article that there's really another interest to consider here, which is the interest of the jury to have the defendant be present at the proceedings. Can you talk a little bit about that? One of the often unstated but critical aspects of a trial is the need to ensure that jurors take the matter seriously. We celebrate the jury trial right. We very much worry when people are excluded from jury service. But at the end of the day, we all admit to ourselves that generally we prefer not to serve on a jury. Generally being thrown in with a group of strangers to focus intently on some complex matters is something that we may prefer not to do, having in our mind better things to do. So a a key aspect of the trial that is promoted through the respect everyone gives the judge, the ceremonial aspects of the proceedings, and the manifest seriousness with which every participant takes the trial is to really convey to the jury, this matters. You need to listen carefully. This is a serious case. If you think the defendant, if the evidence shows that the defendant is is truly guilty, you really ought to hold him accountable. And equally, if you find that the government has failed to prove its case, you really must ensure that the defendant is acquitted. How does this work when the defendant, through his absence, and it wouldn't just be a silent absence, um, no matter how much we patrol the news that a jury gets about what happens outside the courtroom. I can't imagine the jury not being aware that not just Trump is absent, but that Trump is out there sort of celebrating his absence as his communication of the trial's deep unseriousness communication that this is a kangaroo court. What's a jury to do if it's exposed to that? Even assuming it doesn't get hear about the actual things Trump says, but they'll pretty much 
be focused on the empty chair and draw the conclusions Trump wants them, that this is just not worth his being there. And, you know, the short answer is I don't know how that cuts. We could imagine jurors who do take their obligation really seriously are incredibly moved intellectually by the evidence of Trump's guilt and thinking, gosh, against this evidence, his failure to appear is just another indication of the contempt with which he holds all appropriate government activity. And we should hold him accountable for what he has charged and in a way take his absence as consciousness of guilt proof. That's one possibility. But it's not the only possibility. Another possibility is that the jury is moved by his absence to think, gosh, this really is just some sort of politically driven exercise that Trump, for good and sufficient reason, is trying to avoid being a part of. No idea which way a jury goes. The only thing I could be pretty sure of is that the jury will be affected by his absence. In fact, I think the jury is always affected by a defendant's absence in ways that are hard to predict. One of the first things you you learn as as a junior prosecutor, at least in, in the district I worked in, is the opening that a prosecutor makes always needs to entail some pointing at the defendant, um, pointing at the person in a way to say, he's here. We are seeking to hold this person accountable, and you are going to be a part of that accountability exercise. I'm not saying the world comes to an end when you are unable to do a merely theatrical gesture, but I am suggesting that the gesture is really a part of this larger goal that the government has of conveying to the jury that this is a really important proceeding in which this defendant needs to show up. He's going to have to listen to the evidence against him. He obviously has a constitutional right to confront witnesses, but the witnesses should be looking at him too, and the jurors should be looking at him too. This is a part of what makes trials a very human exercise, and we have very much celebrated the humanness of that exercise. Okay, so I think the one other issue that I wanted to just visit quickly is this issue of how presence might be a real complication because of the fact of these overlapping proceedings. So what are your thoughts as to how how Rule 43 itself and how this broader dilemma that we've been talking about would also affect the overlap of these trials? I think you wrote a terrific piece in Lawfare about how challenging it's going to be to balance the scheduling of the pretrial proceedings in the three and perhaps four cases that are going to be playing out. And one might be tempted to think, well, a possible solution to the complex scheduling problems, the idea that a defendant can't stay in trial in four different courtrooms is, 
what if we think about the three-ring circus solution and have one or more trials continue at the same time or in a more serious vein, respond to an argument by Trump that the trial, any single trial, should be put over until after the election with the solution of, well, the trial will continue, but you'll be able to address your obligations as candidate with some arrangement that allows you to absent yourself where appropriate. We're always looking for compromises that make hard decisions go away. And I suspect that some will think that partial attendance might be a compromise. I think the point of my piece is I don't think that's a compromise at all. I think that the obligation of a defendant to appear is not just a matter of a federal rule. It is a fundamental aspect of what trials are all about. The defendant is supposed to sit there as the evidence of his criminal activity that has been alleged by the government is put on. Jurors need to watch him. He needs to listen to the evidence and see the witnesses. And I don't think one can look past those foundational aspects of a trial and come up with some trial light solution that lets Trump campaign and be on trial at the same time. All right. I think that's a great place to end. Dan Richmond, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the search for accountability after January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.